The Discipline of the Reformation, that is, the Reformation in Scotland, by David Hay Fleming, St. Andrews. The Fourth and Final Article. Dr. Cumming of London, in the preface of his edition of the Book of Common Order, says, quote, A liturgy was generally preferred by the Scotch clergy and laity at the Reformation. Quote, the Scotch Church never objected to a written liturgy in her public worship, provided that there was room left in the service for extemporaneous prayer. End quote. And that the first and second books of discipline, quote, enjoin its use. End quote. But the second book of discipline, so far from enjoining it, does not even refer to it. And though the first book of discipline expressly approves it, still it does not prescribe it. In support of his statement, he gives these three references to the first book of discipline. Chapter 2, section 2, chapter 4, section 14, chapter 11, section 3. Now, the first of these merely proves that the Order of Geneva was used in some of our churches so early as 1560, and that it is sufficient to instruct the diligent reader how both the sacraments may be rightly ministered. The second only explains that where no ministers can be had presently, the most apt men that can distinctly read the common prayers in the scriptures must be appointed to exercise both themselves and the church. And his third and last reference only proves that the catechism was bound up in the book of our common order. No doubt the General Assembly in 1562 concluded, quote, that one uniform order shall be taken or kept in ministration of the sacraments and solemnization of marriages and burial of the dead according to the Kirk Book of Geneva, end quote. But this does not prove that the book was used as a liturgy. Indeed, as regards the burial of the dead, the liberty given to the minister, if he be present and required to go to the church, if it be not far off to make some comfortable exhortation to the people touching death and the resurrection after the corpse is laid in the grave, does not seem to have been embraced in Geneva any more than in Scotland. And though the General Assembly in 1564 ordained Quote, that every minister, exhorter, and reader shall have one of the psalm books printed in Edinburgh and use the other contained therein in prayers, marriage, and ministration of the sacraments. End quote. This clearly does not prove that quote, every minister shall use the order contained therein in prayers, marriage, and ministration of the sacraments, end quote, as Dr. Cumming forces it to prove by this garbled version which he gives on his title page. For, as Calderwood, after recording the act, acutely adds, quote, This must be understood respective, for none but ministers by the Book of Discipline might minister the sacraments. End quote. Calderwood says that, quote, None are tied to the prayers of that book, but the prayers are set down as samplers. End quote. Bailey says, quote, The warner is here also mistaken in his belief that ever the Church of Scotland had any liturgy, they had and have still some forms for help and direction, 
by no tie ever in any of them by law or practice. End quote. The book itself proves that it was never intended for a liturgy. Dr. Cumming himself observes, quote, that it presents at once liberty and assistance, or in such like words is appended to many of its forms, end quote. At the end of the account of the public service of the Sabbath, this intimation is subjoined, quote, it shall not be necessary for the minister daily to repeat all these things before mentioned, but, beginning with some manner of confession, to proceed to the sermon, which being ended he either useth the prayer for all estates before mentioned, or else prayeth as the Spirit of God shall move his heart, framing the same according to the time and matter which he hath entreated of. End quote. Again, at the end of the order of excommunication and of public repentance, it is stated that, quote, this order may be enlarged or contracted as the wisdom of the discreet minister shall think expedient. For we rather show the way to the ignorant than prescribe order to the learned. End quote. The Order of Geneva was composed by Knox, Whittingham, Fox, Gilby, and T. Cole, and obtain its name from the circumstance of its having been first used by the English Church at Geneva. It must not be confounded with the order of the Genevan Church, which was used by the Church at Geneva, of which Calvin was minister. The Order of Geneva was called in Scotland the Book of Common Order, and is sometimes called Knox's Liturgy. The form and order of election and admission of superintendence, the order of excommunication and of public repentance, wholly composed by Knox, the treatise of fasting, chiefly composed by Knox, and some prayers, which were penned by occasion of troublesome times, were afterwards inserted. Our frequent quotations from the order of excommunication and of public repentance render these remarks necessary. Dr. Ross says, quote, It is greatly to be regretted that any means but those of a moral kind were ever used by the Church in dealing with delinquents. No doubt all the modes of punishment referred to in the minutes of these early days, appearance before the pulpit, the jugs, the branks, the stocks, the sack-gown, etc., etc., came down from popish times, and they were as zealously resorted to in the Episcopalian as in the Presbyterian periods of Scottish church history. Candor compels us to characterize this as a tissue of inaccuracies. We have already proved that the discipline of the Reformation did not include civil punishments. The second book of Discipline, chapter 1, states that, quote, the civil magistrate craves and gets obedience by the sword and other external means, but the ministry by the spiritual sword and spiritual means. End quote. And in the tenth chapter, it says that the office of a Christian magistrate in the Kirk is quote, to assist and maintain the discipline of the Kirk and punish them civilly that will not obey the censure of the same without confounding always the one jurisdiction with the other. Quote. Of course, we do not know whether or not Dr. Ross includes banishment under his ambiguous 
etc., etc., but he is by no means the first who has charged the reformers with encroaching on the civil power. For Rabbi Coleman, an Erastian champion, made a similar charge in 1645. Quote, I myself, said he, did hear the Presbytery of Edinburgh censure a woman to be banished out of the gates of the city. End quote. Gillespie warmly repelled this as, quote, at the best, a most uncharitable slander, adding that, quote, there is no banishment in Scotland but by the civil magistrate, who so far aideth and assisteth church discipline, that profane and scandalous persons, when they are found unruly and incorrigible, are punished with banishment or otherwise, end quote. And, perhaps to save Coleman's reputation for truthfulness, suggested that he might have heard in the presbytery, quote, somewhat which was represented to or reported from the magistrate, end quote. As for the jugs, Bailey, in his answer to Bishop Maxwell, says, quote, what you bring of pecuniary mulcts, imprisonments, banishments, jogs, cutting of hair, and such like, it becomes neither you to charge, nor us to be charged with any such matters. No church assembly in Scotland assumes the least degree of power to inflict the smallest civil punishment upon any person. The general assembly itself hath no power to fine any creature so much as in one groat. It is true, the laws of the land appoint pecuniary mulcts, imprisonment, jogs, pillories, and banishment for some odious crimes, and the power of putting these laws in execution is placed by the Parliament in the hands of the inferior magistrates in boroughs or shires, or of others to whom the council table gives a special commission for that end. Ordinarily, some of these civil persons are ruling elders and sit with the eldership, so, when the eldership have cognosed upon the scandal alone of criminal persons and have used their spiritual censures only to bring the party to repentance, some of the ruling elders, by virtue of their civil office or commission, will impose a mulct, or send to prison, or stocks, or banish out of the bounds of some little circuit, according as the act of parliament or council do appoint it. But that the eldership should employ its ecclesiastic and spiritual power for any such end, none of us do defend. That either in Scotland or anywhere else in the world, the hair of any person is commanded to be cut by any church judicatory for disgrace and punishment is, as I take it, but a foolish fable. That any person truly penitent is threatened in Scotland with church censures for non-payment of monies is in the former category of calumnies. Quote. When Bailey wrote this, he had the historical collections of Calderwood in his possession. If Dr. Ross had said that appearance before the pulpit and the sack gown came down from the times of the primitive church, he would have been nearer the truth than in saying they came down from popish times. But where did his own pulpit gown come from? As for his apologetic comparison between Presbyterian and prelatic discipline, we emphatically deny that they were the same either in strictness, impartiality, or mode of execution. 
Gillespie, in speaking of the Presbyterian discipline, says, quote, I dare say divers thousands have been kept off from the sacrament in Scotland as unworthy to be admitted. Where I myself have exercised my ministry, there have been some hundreds kept off, partly for ignorance and partly for scandal. The order of the Church of Scotland and the acts of general assemblies are for keeping off all scandalous persons, which every godly and faithful minister doth conscientiously and effectually endeavor. How different his testimony is on this point respecting the prelates. Quote, there was both rules and practice in the Church of Scotland for debarring ignorant and scandalous persons from the sacrament before he, that is, Coleman, was born, though all was put out of course under the prelates, end quote, who, quote, were above thirty years standing, end quote. But let us contrast them a little more closely. Pastors were subject both in calling and conversation to the discipline of the Kirk. On the other hand, prelates exempted themselves in respect of their episcopal administration, and as they were prelates from all censure and scorned to submit themselves to any ecclesiastical judicature, pretending that the sole power of proceeding belonged to them by virtue of their place and office. Again, the Presbyterians not only did not require the magistrate to punish criminals, if he were not convinced that they were guilty, but, though in ecclesiastical matters they allowed no appeal to go higher than the General Assembly, yet in case of wrong being done by the ecclesiastical courts, they allowed complaints to be made to the King and Parliament, who might interpose their authority and cause a due proceeding." while prelates had themselves power to confine, imprison, etc. In the High Commission, ecclesiastical and temporal men were joined together, both armed with the same power, in judging and punishing. Ecclesiastical men therein had power of fining, confining, warding, etc., and the temporal men had power of excommunication, suspension, deprivation, etc., all sat there as the king's commissioners, and, eo nomine, exercised this jurisdiction, temporal men taking hold of the keys, and ecclesiastical men taking hold of the civil sword, which was neither right, regular, nor allowable. And again, the pastor sat, quote, with his brethren in session, presbytery, and assembly, administering the holy discipline holily, that is, in sincerity and faithfulness, without prejudice or partiality, and never ceasing till the scandal be removed, the kirk be purged, and the offender, if it be possible, be one unto God. And all this, as being Christ's own work, he doth with Christ's own weapons, that is, with the spiritual sword of the word." which is mighty through God to subdue everything, exalting itself against God, and to bring sinners to repentance. Quote. Whereas the prelate passed small offenses without any censure, and treated greater sins so partially that the greatest sinners escaped uncensured, or so superficially that boldness in sin was encouraged rather than repentance. 
he swayed the course of discipline as best pleased him. Quote, Processes begun for trying of slanders, if the party, never so wicked, have argument of wait for my lord, or his receiver are incontinently, by the word of his monarchical authority, stricken dead. Hereby it cometh to pass that where prelates rule, sin reigneth, and the nearer the bishop's wings, the greater liberty for sin, as is seen in their own houses and trains. And for this reason is it that both atheists and papists like the episcopal discipline better than the pastoral, which they call straight-laced, because it troubleth their corruption, whereas the other layeth the reins upon their necks. And if the prelate happen to proceed against offenders, his discipline consists not so much in spiritual censure as in worldly power and civil punishment, as fining, confining, imprisoning, etc., which have no power to work upon the consciences of sinners, to bring them to repentance, though this be what is sought by the preachers of the gospel and the chief end of Kirk discipline. End quote. Quote, the prelates never durst indeed take upon them to suspend all scandalous persons from the sacrament. For if they had, it had been said unto most of them, Physician, cure thyself, besides the losing of many of their party. Quote. Moreover, the proceedings of the lordly prelate, quote, in ecclesiastical censures, came neither from Christ nor from the purest antiquity, but from the Pope's canon law. What then hath presbytery to do with prelacy? End quote. Under popery and prelacy, quote, all church discipline degenerated into tyranny. End quote. Quote, the prelates did presume to make law binding the conscience, even in things indifferent, and did persecute, imprison, fine, depose, excommunicate men for certain rites and ceremonies, acknowledged by themselves to be indifferent, setting aside the will and authority of the lawmakers. This the presbyterial government abhorreth. They did excommunicate for money matters, for trifles, which the presbyterial government condemneth. The prelates and their high commission court did assume potestatem utriusque gladii, the power both of the temporal and civil sword. The presbyterial government meddleth with no civil nor temporal punishments. Again, if we turn to the last period of prelatical domination over the Church of Scotland, we find in that quote, diocesan Erastian prelacy under propped by blood and perjury, headed by a civil papacy, embracing in its bosom all foul errors, end quote. The sword and keys were, quote, made one, promiscuously used and put into the same hands, end quote. As for the time of the Restoration, the same eminent authority says, quote, What an inundation and deluge of debauchery and profanity of all sorts came into this nation pari passu with prelacy, and attended their wicked ejecting of a godly, faithful, conscientious ministry, to the number of three or four hundred, and filling their places with such a gang and set of men, as were for the generality, 
the shame and scandal of the gospel, and guilty of most notorious profanity. All Scotland have such a sense, and hath so long smarted under the effects thereof, as neither this nor probably any succeeding age will blot out the remembrance and impression of the same. The same author, Principal Forrester, refers to the efforts of the prelatists after the Revolution in getting, quote, many profane, debauched wretches to withdraw from the inspection of the Lord's servants and from the deserved censures of their scandalous immoralities, end quote. It is not for a moment asserted that any church discipline can purify men and work in them the power of godliness, for that is the work of God by his word and spirit. But it cannot be denied that the faithful exercise of discipline has always acted as a powerful curb on irreligion and vice, and without it there can be no practical reformation in keeping the ordinances of Christ from pollution, in shaming away profaneness and scandal, in condemning and magnifying piety, or in extirpating heresy and unsound, dangerous doctrines. How prophetic have the words of our great reformer proved, quote, If the hedge of discipline be taken away, the doctrine and even the evangel will not long stand. End quote. The old church refining and sin-censuring discipline has fallen into abeyance, and the name, as well as the reality, has almost been forgotten. And what are the results? The Church of Scotland, once beautiful as Tirza and comely as Jerusalem, has been shattered into fragments. And though the gospel is faithfully preached in many of the pulpits of all the sections of the Presbyterian Church, the beauty of the larger bodies is greatly marred by the prevailing laxity in doctrine, discipline, and worship, while the government of some is undermined. Let us take the free church, for example, and we do so the more readily, as she so vauntingly claims identity with Knox, Melville, and Henderson. Her dawning glory soon, quote, became shaded and clouded after she began to occupy the position of a settled institution in the land, end quote. And the late Union movement accelerated her downward course. She has long practiced free communion and dispensed private baptism. She has sanctioned human hymns and God's worship, and instrumental music seems likely to follow. The festival days of popery are beginning to be observed in some of her churches, and the mark of the beast has been freely adopted as an architectural ornament on her buildings. And something suspiciously like private communion has been lately mooted by one of her ministers. Not only are the bastard articles of Perth making way within her borders, but rationalism is openly sapping in her the very foundations of the Christian faith. For long her misfortune has been to be ruled by a little coterie of self-elected, tyrannical men, whose monopoly, if unchecked, threatens her ruin. She has made the humbling confession that her Supreme Court is incapable of judging fairly and calmly in cases of discipline, and is considering the advisability of appointing a committee to hear the cases appealed to the Assembly. 
The present proposal is acknowledged to be part of a scheme for changing the whole judicial functions of the Church. No doubt the powers of the proposed committee are restricted and well-guarded, but the past history of the Church shows how all such caveats can be violated. We need not point out how this scheme is a slur upon the presbyterial form of government, discipline being government in operation, nor how it may be worked by the leaders, for its tendency to bite is clearly shown by the anxiety displayed to have it properly muzzled. At the time of the Reformation, how appropriate were the words of the psalmist, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparedst room before it, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. That heavenly discipline whereby brotherly amity and sacred harmony were so continued and increased, that all as one man did stand together for the doctrines, sacraments, and kirk government against the adversaries either lurking or professed, was a wall for defense and a bond for peace and progress of the gospel. Quote, it was an hedge of the Lord's vineyard, and the hammer whereby the horns both of adversaries and disobeyers were beaten and broken. End quote. Now it becomes us to say with the psalmist, Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven, and behold, and visit this vine. It is frequently remarked that people nowadays would not submit to the discipline of the Reformation. But why not? Will Christians of the present day not submit themselves to the strict rule of Christ's house? No doubt the profane and the vicious would stoutly object, but the carnal heart has always been enmity against God. Quote, Calvin was subjected to a sentence of banishment from the Senate of Geneva and exposed to a popular tumult before he could prevail on the citizens to submit to ecclesiastical discipline. End quote. And when Knox first proposed it in Scotland, it was derided as a devout imagination. And he was not the only preacher who was dreaded and hated by the licentious and profane for reproving their vices, for some of the ministers even suffered violence on that account. Carnal reason suggests that, quote, Reformation must not grieve, but please. It must not break nor bruise, but heal and bind up. It must be an acceptable thing, not displeasing. It must be as the voice of harpers, harping with their harps, but not as the voice of many waters, or as the voice of great thunders. Thus would many heal the wound of the daughter of Sion slightly, and daub the wall with untempered mortar, and so far comply with the sinful humors and inclinations of men, as, in effect, to harden them in evil, and to strengthen their hands and their wickedness. Or at least, if men be moralized, then to trouble them no farther. 
Saith not the apostle, If I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ? So that either we must have a reformation displeasing to God or displeasing to men. It is not the right reformation which is displeasing to a Tobiah, to a Sanballat, to a Demetrius, to the earthly-minded, to the self-seeking politicians, to the carnal and profane. It is but the old enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 Nay, what if reformation be displeasing to good men, insofar as they are unregenerate, carnal, earthly, proud, unmortified? For who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Proverbs 29. The divisions of the church are a great hindrance to the revival of the discipline of the Reformation. Still, the churches could do much to restore its exercise. These divisions cannot excuse the want of it, more especially since they were mainly caused by its relaxation. The abounding iniquity and fearful apostasy of the present day call loudly for its revival. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. But they said, We will not walk therein. Dr. Ross says that, quote, The leaders both of the First and Second Reformation in Scotland did not attempt to legislate for all time as to the methods to be employed for securing the great ends they wished to bring about. It is distinctly laid down in the Second Book of Discipline that the assemblies of the Church have power to abrogate and abolish all statutes and ordinances concerning ecclesiastical matters that are found noisome and unprofitable, and agree not with the time, the italics are his, or are abused by the people. There are sticklers for old forms and methods in the present day who would be considered sad laggards by the very men whom they profess so greatly to revere. End quote. It might be asked whether this taunt was thrown out to screen the defections of the free church or to reproach the small Presbyterian bodies who, keeping their garments clean, have faithfully testified for the whole covenanted work of Reformation. It is to be feared that the sentence quoted from the seventh chapter of the second book of discipline is often quite misunderstood. It must be taken with the parallel passages in the Confession of 1560 and in the Westminster Confession. In the 20th article of the Old Scotch Confession, it is stated, quote, not that we think that any policy and an order in ceremonies can be appointed for all ages, times, and places, for as ceremonies such as men have devised are but temporal, so may and ought they to be changed when they rather foster superstition than edify the church using the same." End quote. Calderwood says, these, quote, words are not so to be taken as if the Kirk had power to institute sacred rites, but only to make institutions of order and decency in the ministration of such rites and parts of divine service as the Lord had already instituted, 
as may be seen in the first book of discipline, where in the heads of the policy of any kirk they distinguish betwixt things necessary to be observed in every kirk, and things variable to be ordered by every congregation, and allow every particular kirk to have a particular policy of her own without prejudice of the common or general. As, for example, whether the congregation should assemble this or that day of the week, or how many days in the week, or if but once. In this or the like, every particular kirk may appoint their own policy. The first book of discipline was accommodated to the time in some points, and liberty was reserved to the posterity to establish a more perfect, as you may see in Mr. Knox, his history. That which was temporary may be discerned from that which they esteemed not to be alterable by some reason or respect alleged. And indeed, we may safely say that the whole was recommended to be perpetually observed except some few things, as the office of superintendents, exhorters, readers, and some other things whereunto they were forced, as they thought, through necessity. The policy of the Kirk being so defaced before in the time of popery that it could not be perfectly repaired in haste. End quote. The Westminster Confession, chapter 1, section 6, says, quote, There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. End quote. Gillespie says, quote, There is nothing which any way pertaineth to the worship of God left to the determination of human laws, beside the mere circumstances, which neither have any holiness in them, forasmuch as they have no other use and praise and sacred than they have in civil things, nor yet were particularly determinable in Scripture, because they are infinite. End quote. These extracts show how much, or rather how little power, the Reformers believe the Church to have in making statutes and ordinances concerning ecclesiastical matters. End quote. As for the abrogating and abolishing things that, quote, are abused by the people, end quote, the abuse cannot take away the use where the thing is itself necessary. It is enough that they be purged from the abuse. For, has the Lord's Supper, the ordination of ministers, and other ordinances of the gospel not been perniciously abused? Quote, Yet who will say that things necessary, whether the necessity be that of command or that of the means or end, are to be taken away because of the abuse? End quote. Gillespie's argument is this, quote, All things and rights which have been notoriously abused to idolatry, if they be not such as either God or nature hath made to be of a necessary use, should be utterly abolished and purged away from divine worship, in such sort that they may not be accounted nor used by us as sacred things or rights pertaining to the same. End quote. 
Not only is the correction and punishment of offenders included among the things which are utterly necessary in the first book of discipline, ninth head, but in the 18th article of the Confession of 1560, quote, Ecclesiastical discipline, uprightly ministered as God's word prescribeth, whereby vice is repressed and virtue nourished, end quote, is given as one of the three notes whereby the true kirk is discerned from the false. It cannot be said of discipline at least that it is abused by the people, for they do not know what it is. And contrariwise, the very things which are abused by the people to superstition and idolatry are now thought to agree with the times. In the dying words of the noble Marquis of Argyle, the proto-martyr of the covenant, quote, God hath laid engagements upon Scotland. We are tied by covenants to religion and reformation. These that were then unborn are yet engaged, and in our baptism we are engaged to it. And it passeth the power of all the magistrates under heaven to absolve them from the wise oath of God, end quote. The National Covenant binds us to continue in the discipline as well as in the doctrine of the true Reformed Church of Scotland. For this is the form of the oath, quote, Promising and swearing by the great name of the Lord our God that we shall continue in the obedience of the doctrine and discipline of this kirk and shall defend the same according to our vocation and power all the days of our lives under the pains contained in the law, and danger both of body and soul in the day of God's fearful judgment. End quote. Quote, and without all doubt, they who swear the oath meant by discipline that whole policy of the church, which is contained in those books, that is, the two books of discipline. Gillespie also says, quote, No Reformed Church in Europe is so strictly tied by the bond of an oath and subscription to hold fast her first discipline and use of the sacraments, and to hold out popish rites, as is the Church of Scotland. And who knoweth not that an oath doth always oblige and bind, when it is taken concerning things sure and possible, truly and without deceit, with deliberation and with judgment, justly for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. What one of all those conditions was here wanting? Can we then say any less than a pope said before us, it is not safe that any person whatever should act contrary to his oath unless it be such as, when kept, would lead to the loss of eternal salvation? O damnable impiety, which maketh so small account of the violation of the aforesaid oath, which hath as great power to bind us as that oath of the princes of Israel made to the Gibeonites had to bind their posterity, Second Samuel 21, 1 and 2. For it was made by the whole incorporation of this land, and hath no term at which it may cease to bind. Nay, in some respects, it bindeth more straitly than that oath of the princes of Israel. For, first, that was made by the princes only, this by prince, pastors, and people. Second, that was made rashly, 
for the text showeth that they ask not counsel from the mouth of the Lord, this with most religious and due deliberation. Third, that was made to men, this to the great God. Fourth, that sworn but once, this once and again. End quote. Again, the Solemn League and Covenant binds us to endeavor, quote, the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government. The reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government, according to the word of God and the example of the best Reformed churches. And to, quote, endeavor to bring the churches of God in the three kingdoms to the nearest conjunction and uniformity in religion, confession of faith, form of church government, this means corrective government, directory for worship and catechizing, end quote. Quote, now, setting aside the circumstantials, there is not any substantial part of the uniformity according to the covenant which is not either expressly grounded upon the word of God or by necessary consequence drawn from it, and so no commandment of men but of God. End quote. When the English Parliament ratified the Westminster Confession, they did not reject but recommitted, quote, particulars and discipline, end quote, but as the Parliament was dissolved by Cromwell, the report of the committee was never returned. These particulars are said to have been the 30th and 31st chapters and the 4th section of the 20th chapter. But at any rate, when the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland approved of the Directory for Public Worship, the form of Presbyterial Church Government, and the Confession of Faith, it was provided that the former should, quote, be no prejudice to the order and practice of this Kirk in such particulars as are appointed by the Books of Discipline and Acts of General Assemblies, and are not otherwise ordered and appointed in the Directory, end quote. The second was approved, February 10th, 1645, not only because they desired, quote, an uniformity in Kirk government betwixt these kingdoms, but a solicitation to preserve, quote, the form of Kirk government in this kingdom, according to the word of God, books of discipline, acts of general assemblies, and national covenant, end quote. And the latter was, quote, found by the assembly to be most agreeable to the word of God, and nothing contrary to the received doctrine, worship, discipline, and government of this kirk." The first step of defection in Scotland from the covenanted work of Reformation, and that which led the way to its overthrow, was the public resolutions of church and state, which brought in the malignant party, first to the army, and then to the judicatories, quote, on making a superficial and counterfeit profession of repentance, end quote. In 1661, the state buried the covenanted work of reformation under the infamous Act Recissory, and now the voluntary theory, quote, may be viewed as an Act Recissory in the ecclesiastical sense, annulling, setting aside, and burying all the public laws which have been made in support of religion in this land since the period of the Reformation. End quote. Quote, we are to this day an unhumbled and an unprepared people, 
that there are among us both many cursed Achans and many sleeping Jonas, but few wrestling Jacobs. Even the wise virgins are slumbering with the foolish. Matthew 25, 5. Surely, unless we be timely awakened and more deeply humbled, will God punish us yet seven times? Leviticus 26, 18, 21, 24, 28. More for our sins. And if he hath chastised us with whips, he will chastise us with scorpions. And he will yet give a further charge to the sword to avenge the quarrel of his covenant. Leviticus 26, 25. End quote. Scotland is at last cursed with the re-erection of a popish hierarchy, while many of the watchmen in Sion are singing the siren song of toleration. Quote, O oh, Scotland, understand and turn again, or else as God lives most terrible judgments are abiding thee. End quote. Note to listener. Some references and citations were passed over for greater ease of listening. The listener is referred to the original to access them. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources, and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things Reformed.